If you have your Bibles, come on, get with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 15. How many of you got something out of last week's message? You were here? You Okay, perfect. I, I want to encourage you, if you weren't here, you didn't get the message, uh, these are kind of tracking together a little bit, at least week one and week two. Then we're going to bounce off in a whole kind of different direction per se. We're going to get very topical in nature. But these first two weeks is kind of setting the foundation. Last weekend and this weekend, setting the foundation for this series and kind of what we're dealing with, it, it, with, with the idea of that's life. And, and, and last week we talked a little bit about uh, what, it, what it means to just have real life. Come on, how many of you know that real life is taking place in all of our lives, right? And we, t- we talked about this term Zoe, which means like everyday real life stuff happening. But we also talked, to, talked about the idea that in the midst of real life, it doesn't have to knock out real faith. And that the fact that real life is happening at times doesn't mean that we don't have real faith. And so we dealt with that whole idea and we talked about how, like Devon was talking about, that God gives us a power like no other, promises like no other, and a new nature like no other, so that we can navigate life, real life, in the midst of, of real faith and everything that's going on. So we're going to kind of continue with that topic this morning as we're going to look at faith a little bit more intricately. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 15 has been the scripture that we're, um, we're using to kind of launch this series, and it says this, His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness, Zoe and Eusebia, through the knowledge of him who called us, this is the Greek terms, just so you know, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5 is what we're going to start uh, looking at this morning all the way to verse 10. It says this, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's, that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will, you will, never, you will never fall. This morning, as we continue on in our series, That's Life, I want to speak to you from the subject, Faith Has a Posse. Faith Has a Posse, as we look at uh, what I call the friends of faith. The friends of faith. Come on, will you, will you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive, that it's active. I thank you for this beautiful church, not the four walls, but these amazing people that have gathered here this morning, not for just another message, not for just another moment, not just to kind of spend an hour and a half of our our lives doing something else, but on purpose. We've gathered here today to hear your voice, to worship you, to proclaim your name. And so this morning as we do that, God, I pray that you would bless, that you would make whole, that you would bring hope to those of us who are hopeless. Now, for those of us who are needing to hear you this morning, God, I pray that you would speak loudly and profoundly, that we would walk out of here knowing that you have said great and mighty words over our lives. We love you and we worship you in this moment. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Uh, how many of you understand this idea of a posse? Just a show, show of hands, how many of you have your own little posse? Come on, be honest, right? Women, I don't know if you know this, but you go to the bathroom in a posse, right? 
straight up. But we're in a new generation, so now dudes are going to the bathroom in a posse, right? <laughs> and uh, I love this idea of a posse. You see it, maybe, maybe you'd better know it as an entourage or, or just having your homies or your crew with you or whatever it may be, just having the, the flock of soccer moms with you, right? Or, or however it may be, like if you're downtown during lunchtime, you see everybody who's kind of in their posse, in their entourage with their crew heading to, to lunch or back to the office. And I know it's something that may be foreign to some of us because we don't necessarily call our little groups that we hang out with, our friends, our, our posse, I think we should because it's just a fun term, right? Who are you doing today? Hanging with my posse, right? That's just kind of fun for us to do. But either way, we are more comfortable when we are with our crew. We are more comfortable when we are with our friends, right? We are more comfortable. We love, and, 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 and maybe you're not necessarily the most extroverted people. That's fine. This isn't an introvert or an extrovert issue. This is a friendship issue. This is a community issue. This is a design issue. Come on, how many of you know, you've heard this before, there's strength in numbers, right? How many of you know it would be awkward if you were the only one sitting in this room right now? <laughs> right? If we were all up here doing worship and then you were the only one, you all by, no one else is in here and I'm just preaching right at you, right? That would be a little freaky, a little weird, and I'm pretty sure you would leave us by ourselves at that point in time. <laughs> there's, this, there's this comfort level that, that comes. Uh, Eric was mentioning earlier, we were at the National Day of prayer breakfast, um, and so I had an invite to, uh, to uh, most of our board, uh, invited our board and our pastors, and there was only a few that were able to make it since it was at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday, and uh, so we went down there, and uh, as we were sitting at the table, it was me and three other guys, and I, and I remember as I was like leaning over my French toast and fruit, uh, thinking to myself, thank you God that these three guys showed up, because I don't know what I would do if I was sitting at this table by myself. Right? That would just be, I'm that guy at that point, right? But there's something that happens with those three guys there that were hanging with us and we were able to laugh and, and joke around and enjoy the prayer breakfast and meet other people and everything like that. There was this sense of calm that came to my life. There was this sense of like, okay, everything's going to be all right. And albeit like, you may think, oh, Jason, you're in front of people all the time. It's not a big deal. I will tell you that every single time I speak in front of people, I am still gut-wrenched nervous. It just is what it is, because I, 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 the pulpit is very sacred to me. Being able to have a microphone and share the word of God and to pray, it's a very sacred thing to me. So when I had to get up in front of all these pastors and leaders, peers of mine, the governor was there, all these other people were there, and I was just like shaking in my boots, right? Like, what do I have to offer? But having my crew with me, come on, in the back, cheering me on, say, go for it, make it happen, pray well. Like, I was comfortable in that moment. I could just get up there and stand in, in the anointing and stand in the presence of God. And, and, and do what I was there to do, right? Why? Because there was comfort in my, in my posse. Peter presents the same picture for us when it comes to our faith. He says, look, faith has some friends that go along with it. It's no different. He's, trying, he's saying to us that faith in and of itself is sufficient, but when in a posse with a crew, with these other attributes that he lists, our faith becomes the best and most confident version of itself that it can be. Come on, have you walked into church before faithless? Right? Faith is whining a little bit. You don't know what you're believing God for and you're struggling with him. And then you get into a worship moment like this morning and holy moly, your faith is lifted. 
All of a sudden, I can start believing God for anything and everything? I'll tell you what, as a senior pastor, there's many moments where I walk in here and I am, my faith is down. The week's been hard, but when the church lifts its voice and faith arises, come on, I get ready to go, oh, we could do this. And now all of a sudden, I'm pumped for 5 p.m. I got faith, for, who knows what's going to happen now? Faith has a posse. Now, faith is sufficient in and of itself. And as we talked about last week, where there is life, there must be faith. The expression of faith in our lives is not separate to real life, but rather it is necessary. And these two realities are not mutually exclusive. Real life and real faith have to exist together. But Peter here then describes the fantastic truth of having faith that has friends. The truth is that so many of us run through life at breakneck speeds white-knuckling it the entire time, just trying to simply hold on. But the gospel presents to us an alternative way to do real life, and that is with real faith. Come on, someone shout real faith this morning. But real faith looks differently than how most of us thinks, think that it looks. See, for a lot of us, our perception of faith is this mythic target in our lives that we never fully understand or find. To many of us, it's like running blind into a dark forest just hoping we don't run into a tree. That's faith for us. We believe that it's just simply blind. I have faith. And so for the analytical people in the house, you struggle with faith because you need something to grapple with. You need something to hang on to. And I will say this, that there is a degree of faith that is absolutely that faith. If we could fit God into our minds, it means we created him. But how many know we didn't create God? God created us. And so there is a portion of our faith that is based in exactly that, faith. But Peter submits to us that our faith must be accompanied by some things. It has a posse. Now before we move on, I want to make sure that we clarify this word supplement, all right? Uh, the scripture that we just read out of the ESV version uses this term supplement. I, use out of the, I, I read out of the ESV Version. In other versions, NIV, you would, you would see the word add, supplement or add, right? And this is where the translation between what was originally written has a bit of trouble with our English language. To get a better idea of what Peter is getting at, we have to look at the, the Greek. Now, I am definitely not proficient in the Greek, just so you know, all right? That waved bye-bye to me a long time ago, along with good English. But the word add or supplement, some of you are like, that's actually not good English right there. Exactly, all right? The word add or supplement in the Greek is the word epikoragaste, all right? From which comes the English words chorus or choreograph, all right? A believer is to furnish, supply, or support his life of faith with these virtues that Peter's adding. And we'll talk about those in a minute. A chorus is a collection of notes that work together. They are a posse of notes that went together and in unity form a sound that is pleasant to the ears. Each note is sufficient in and of itself, but when together and with the support of others, it becomes something unstoppable and undeniable. I'm listening to you this morning as these singers are singing together and the, and the team's backing them up, and man, some powerful Music was taking place this morning, right? Some powerful sound, and there was almost a declaration in the sound. And this is the word that Peter is using. He, he in our translation, it says add or supplement, but really what the word, best way to do it, is we need to surround or supply our faith with some of these things. It doesn't make your faith insufficient. 
It just makes it the best version of what it can be. It gives us confident faith. All right? The idea of supplementation creates this idea that faith isn't sufficient, but that's not what Peter is saying. Rather, he's saying that faith leads our lives, and these seven things work in chorus with that life, creating practical measure to our real lives of faith. Now, I cannot, for the sake of time, handle all seven of these things at length. We could literally do a seven-week study looking at each one of these every single week. To some of you, you're like, let's do it. And the rest of you are like, no, let's not, all right? I'm going to just quickly breeze over them and just kind of highlight them, and then I've got some very practical points that I want to give us this morning. So I want, to look at, I want to take a look at this posse that surrounds faith that Peter gives us, looking at the implications of them in our lives. The first one that he mentions is virtue. Every shot, virtue. Virtue. The idea that Peter is trying to get across is excellence according to purpose. I'll explain what that means in a minute. To the Greek philosophers, it meant the fulfillment of a thing. When anything in nature fulfills its purpose, watch this, that is virtue, it's excellence. The land that produces crops is excellent because it's fulfilling its purpose. The tool that works correctly is excellent or it has virtue because it is doing what the tool is supposed to do. True virtue in the Christian life is not, one author said, is not polishing human qualities no matter how fine they may be, but producing divine qualities that make the person more like Jesus. So in, a, in essence, what he's saying is like, to your faith, supply, surround it with virtue. This idea of pursuing our purpose, finding that, that thing or that space in our life that is encouraging us and showing us like crops being produced by the land, it is excellent because it's doing what it's supposed to be doing. And I would venture to say that a lot of us across this whole weekend are going to be sitting in here struggling with this idea because the idea of purpose and identity is very, very distant for our lives. I think one of the greatest ways that the enemy shames us, discourages us, guilts us, puts us down is helping us believe that we don't have a purpose or an identity in Christ. Right? Right? But how many of you know, how many of you have been around the person that, that knows their purpose and they have a strong identity? Right? You ever been around that person before? They're not arrogant, but they're confident. Right? I, my daughter, she blows me away because this is who she is. I, I know where she gets it from. Her mother, her mother's extremely confident. Uh, it's something that I have lack of confidence. It's something that I've struggled with in my life. But my daughter just knows who she is. And she will rock it if she's got it. It's insane. I was looking at what she was wearing this morning, and I was like, baby, that, that's beautiful. And in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, what are you wearing, Right? <laughs> She's got tennis shoes and a skirt over pants, and it's like multicolored and everything like that. But she, man, she walks out, she combs her hair, and she's got, why? Because she knows who she is. She knows who she is. And I think the church would be a greater force on this planet if we as Christ followers would stop listening to the enemy of our soul and start understanding who we are in Christ, right? So we've got to add to our faith. It's one thing to have faith. I've got faith. I've got faith. I've got faith. Right? It's one thing to have faith, but now Peter says, to your faith, come on, surround it with some confidence. Surround it with this idea of virtue. Surround it with purpose. And faith all of a sudden becomes even stronger. Right? So watch how this starts to, to build. The second one that he uses is, is knowledge, right? The word translated in, uh, in 2 Peter, knowledge, means full knowledge or knowledge that is growing. All right, it's practical knowledge 
of Jesus. It's practical knowledge of Jesus. It means that we're digging into his word. It means that we're worshiping him. It means that we're learning about who Jesus is on our journey of life. So we add virtue, and then to virtue we add knowledge. So now all of a sudden we have purpose, and then we have an understanding or a greater degree or understanding of who Jesus is in our lives, and it starts to then supply our faith with, once again, more power, more strength, more ability. It's gaining its confidence. What happens when you got one guy with you? It's one thing. When you got two guys with you, it's one. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about. When you got one of your ladies with you, it's one thing. But two ladies, all of a sudden, everything's changed. (laughs) Right? We're about to add five more. That's just scary. It gets dangerous. All right? The third thing he says is self-control. This is the one where the church gets quiet. We're like, I like virtue. I like knowledge. You just stepped on my toes, bro. (laughs) What do you mean self-control? This is literally the, the, the idea that Peter's trying to present. Temperance. All right? It means this. The ability to hold yourself in. I like that. The ability to hold my flesh back. The ability to be in situations where it's like, Neep! like when you're driving on the 15, Right? And everybody else is a bad driver but you? (laughs) I know how you think. (laughs) And all of a sudden your flesh wants to come out or you're in a situation at school or at college or at your workplace or in our marriages or wherever it may be and all of a sudden your flesh wants to come out. You wants to come out. It's what what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7 where you do not do what you do want to do and you do do what you do not want to do. It's the doo-doo scripture. Right? He says, I find this thing at work in me that I'm constantly battling. And the whole idea of self-control is to keep one's self in check. Now, you may say, are you asking me to be perfect? No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with perfection. It's just learning about self-control. Check this out. Fruit of the Spirit, one of them, we all love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And then we skip over the last part. (laughs) (laughs) Self-control. It's the last part. Why? Because it's the spirit of God in us, the new nature that we talked about last week, the power that God gives us to be able to hold our flesh back. Bad flesh. Stop that. Stop that. Stop that. Right? Self-control. The funny thing is, this is interesting, that parents understand this. We'll give ourselves a pass in grace, but we demand it from our kids. Right? Self-control. Stop crying. What are you talking about? That's their flesh yelling the loudest it can. Right? Stop that. Stop doing this. Sit quietly. Uh-uh. That ain't going to happen. Right? Just wiggle worms. Just, right? Wiggle worms. That's what we call our kids. You're such a wiggle worm. But a lot of us are running around in life and faith with wiggle worms. Come on. Right? And you're like, oh, I want to go this way, and I want to go this way. And it's like... What is going on? Self-control. Hold yourself back. The fourth one he says is steadfastness. I love this one. It is the ability to endure when circumstances are difficult. Now, the word, the Greek word, there's a lot of Greek study in this. He uses some just astounding, beautiful words. And I really do. Like, I wish I was so proficient in Greek that I could just just blurt all this stuff out. But... The best way I can describe it, the Greek word that he uses here literally means 
the ability to stay under. The ability to stay under. The ability to hold pressure. The ability to persevere when things get, get heavy. All right? And some of us don't see perseverance that way. We see perseverance as being able to ask God to remove the weight from our lives. To remove that thing that we're holding up above us, right? But, Paul, but Peter is saying, no, 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 perseverance, the idea of adding this, all right, this, this, this fourth thing here, is the ability to stand up underneath heavy weight. Heavy weight. Uh, I try to work out as much as I possibly can, and we do these things called squats. And uh, for the most part, I like squats. It makes it impossible to fit in pants, but there you go. But my coach will occasionally program a different type of squat. It's pause squats. They're the worst thing ever. Pause squats? No, devil cats pause squats. That's more like it, okay? And so, pause squats, this is what you do. You get the heaviest load that you can possibly do, and then you squat, and you squat, and you squat, and you squat, and then you stay in this position, and you count seconds. One 1,000, two 1,000. Stupid thousand. And you keep on going. And sometimes he'll manage. I want a six-second pause. I want a ten-second pause. I want a three-second pause within multiple repetitions and everything like that. This is the idea that Peter is trying to get across. It's being able to bear weight in a pause position. Because we're not heaven-bound yet. And a lot of us are, are, are frustrated in our faith. We're frustrated in our walk with Jesus because we haven't figured out this portion of our faith. And so what he's saying is, look, you've got to add these things. You've got to supplement. You've got to bring around these. got to be working in a chorus together. You've got to learn how to pause squat through life. Because how many of you know there's some moments that are heavy? There's some stuff in real life that is frustrating. But if we learn to persevere, hold up underneath it, Man, we're going to be able to make it through life. Because glorification, the big theological word, is at the end of it all. And while we may be bearing weight right now in life, come on, some of us are bearing weight in here right now. Some of us are so frustrated because we're bearing so much weight. We're bearing that divorce. We're bearing that betrayal. We're bearing that addiction. We're bearing that financial pressure. We're bearing all kinds of different things. For some of us, we're bearing school right now. We're bearing, we've got a lot of weight. And the question is, can we persevere? The fifth one is godliness. We talked about this last week, eusbia, right? It's godlikeness, this idea of reverence towards God at all times. Some of us are really good at this when we're in the mountains, right? You ever gotten in the mountains before and all of a sudden the reverence towards God comes out? It's just, wow. It's amazing. Our daughter, our second daughter, is, is due in August. And I'm, I've been thinking back to the moments that our first two kiddos were born. And I remember being in the, in, in the hospital room. And when that little baby is lifted up, you just, you, you lose all quantifiable terms of reality. As you see the goodness, the graciousness, and the almighty power of God's creative work. You're like, we, like, what? It's a little baby. And you watch it grow, and you're just like, this is insanity. Why? So we hold reverence towards it. And it's easy in that moment, 
But come on, can we hold an awe or reverence towards God in the mundane moments of life? Come on, what happens when you're sitting in that gray cubicle, typing away, post-it notes everywhere? <laughs> right? Can you hold awe and reverence directed towards God in that moment? I hate this cubicle. This cubicle is going to drive me insane. If someone puts another post-it note, I'm going to go post it on them. Right? But we have well-directed reverence. The sixth one is brotherly affection. Some of you like this word. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Brotherly love. That's what it's saying. Brotherly love. Some of you hate the fact that you come in here every single weekend and somebody wants to give you some brotherly affection. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you something? That's just not something we do here at the well. It's actually a very, very Christian thing. The church should be a place of brotherly affection. Right? You're lucky we don't practice some of the things in Scripture, like kiss your other brother, right? <laughs> Greet him with a kiss. Some of you be like, come on. What's up? I still remember, though, our church back in uh, the church that I grew up in, in Covington, Washington, small little church. We shared it. Uh, we had a Ukrainian congregation, Ukrainian congregation that would come in. They had four-hour services, y'all. Four hours. We're going to that next week. And so... They had four-hour services, but they didn't care that we were American, right? So I had this band, and we would practice after church, and the, the Ukrainians would be in, in their church having their service. But as we would, like, wander out to get to the room, the youth room, where we would go and practice and everything like that, we would get caught sometimes. And we purposely tried to negotiate ourselves away from the Ukrainians, right? So we would just be, like, we were dodging people. Why? Because they would greet you with a brotherly kiss. They would grab you, and we're just like, what? <laughs> but as I look back upon it, I go, you know what? There's something so biblical to that. It's brotherly affection. And that's what the Bible's saying. We've got, so we don't practice that here, but we do say, hey, come on, shake somebody's hand. Come on, say hi to somebody. Take three minutes and go beyond, hey, how are you? Good, that's good. Because I think that's what church should be. And the fourth, the, the seventh one is love. Is love. <laughs> I said fourth, but it was really seventh. <laughs> Some of you are like, where are we at in the points? It's love. This one is not brotherly affection, but it literally means sacrificial love. Not for the brother within the four walls of the church, but for the world around us. So Peter says, to your faith... In great chorus, create a posse of strength with these seven things. Then he explains why. The first reason why. All right, and we're going to end on this. The first reason why is it creates a framework for effectiveness in our lives. Come on, it creates a framework for effectiveness in our lives. 2 Peter 1.8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective. Right? And I think we all want to be effective in life, don't we? Like, don't we all want a measure of effectiveness? Don't we all, at least for the most part, and I know I'm painting with a very broad brush, but for the most part, we get up on the daily, we go to work, and we want to be effective. Right? Why? Because we feel like we're being purposeful. We feel like we're being engaged. Every single day, there's something that we enjoy about being effective. And Peter's saying, look, when your faith is surrounded by these things, when it's guarded, when it's supplied with these things, it creates the framework for effectiveness in our lives. 
From the simplest of ways to the grandest of ways, impact and effectiveness is actually what gives each and every single one of us the sense of purpose in life. Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, gives his final instructions. It's been coined as the Great Commission, but simply put, he says this, go, be effective, make a difference. Come on, somebody. Go, be effective, and make a difference in someone's life. It's someone's world, to that neighbor next door, to the single mom down the road who you know is struggling, to the person that you want to, oh, I want to slip around them. But go be effective, make an impact. And if the church would stop bickering about things that we can't control in the world and start doing the things that we've been called to do in the world, then we would make a massive difference. It sets the framework for our lives in order to have impact. To be the church that is effective in the world around us makes us the type of church that I believe Jesus desires to see. The second thing that it does is it produces a perspective that is shaped by vision. Did you hear that this morning? It produces a perspective that is shaped by vision. 2 Peter 1.9. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former Sins. Peter says that when these things are missing, we lack perspective and, and vision. We are nearsighted and we're blind, but whoever has this posse rolling with their faith, with them they see greater things at greater length and greater focus. Come on, vision's an important thing, isn't it? And some of us don't understand that. Some of us with glasses in here, depending on the degree of your eyesight, you know how important vision is. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> right? But those of us who have pretty good vision, less, less contact in that area. We don't, we don't completely understand it. But no matter where you find yourself this morning, I want to encourage you that vision's a really important thing. Numbers chapter 13, verse 25 and all the way to about 33, tells the story of some spies that were sent into the promised land. I was sharing this with our leadership team a couple weeks ago and I thought it reminded, it needed repetition in our services this morning, but Numbers tells the story of these spies that were sent into the land before them, the promised land that, that they were being led into at this point by Moses. We know that Joshua is going to eventually take over, but Joshua and Caleb are two of the guys that are a part of these spies and they go into the land and They come back and they're supposed to give a report to the congregation before them and when they come back the, the story goes a little bit like this that a bunch of the spies started off the conversation going yo guys This place is amazing It's a it's a land filled with all kinds of amazing things Verse 28 says however Gosh, have you ever been in that moment where it's a good report, good report, good report, and then you have the however person? And all of a sudden, after all these great things, they brought them back and they showed them the fruit. They said, look at this fruit. It's amazing. It's so good. However, there's some people in the land that if we try to take it, they're going to kill us. They're going to destroy us. They're going to annihilate us. There's all kinds of things that we have to get around. And then it says in 30, Verse 30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. 
Come on, somebody. We need to sometimes get our butt in the right place and start understanding that God has some power that he's given us. And when our perspective is shaped by vision, we can see things not as they are, but how they should be. So Peter says, when you add these things to your faith, when you surround your faith with these things, all of a sudden it produces a perspective that is shaped by vision. See, in our churches, our ministries, our businesses, our families, we got to be able to see things with a visionary mindset. We got we to see things through the, through the lens of vision. We got some big vision around here that we want to accomplish. We're well able to do it. Why? Because we got faith that's supplied with some things. Am I talking to anybody in here this morning? And some of you this morning have no vision. And I'm not saying that to, to shame you or anything like that. What I'm saying is that you may have come in here with no vision, but I pray that you leave here understanding that through faith and the posse with it, it produces a perspective that is shaped by vision. Shaped by vision. There's some big dreams and some massive ideas in each and every single one of our hearts in here. My question to you is, is are you allowing the naysayers, are you allowing the critics, we're gonna talk about this in this series, are you allowing the negative sound bites to form and inform your vision? Or are we Caleb type people that says, yeah, there may be some people that want to take us out and, and there may be some giants in the land and there may be some things that I can't control, but I am well able to overcome it. I can step into this promised land because when God is on my side, I have everything that I need for what? Life and godliness. And the third thing he says is this. That faith with these friends, it supplies a foundation of security in our lives. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. You will never fall. You know, our security must rest in Jesus our firm foundation must rest in him. And Peter says that when we have these things hanging out with our faith, it creates a foundation of security in our lives. Not insecurity, but of security. Come on, have you ever battled with insecurity before? <laughs> have you ever battled with like less than firm from footing before. I remember when we first moved here. Man, that was scary. Moved here with nine other families into, into the land of the unknown. <laughs> we first got here, we left what was a really, really great position and we had our own home. We had all this stuff and all these things and everything like that. And then we land here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we're living with our parents and we're sharing this house and we're raising these kids and we're trying to plant this church and we're trying to do all these things. And I'll tell you what, man, there were some moments that my footing was less than secure in that moment. There were some moments where I was challenged as a man and I should be going, man, I should be providing greater for my family and more for my family. But then I had these things surrounding my faith so that I could lead my 
my family and walk through life and I said, come on, Jesus, I know that you're with me in this. And so if I've got this faith that is surrounded by these things, I know that it's not adding up the way that I want it to add up. It's not looking the way that I thought it was going to look, but I can stand firmly and securely in you. Some of us this morning, we need to stand. Come on, we need to stand upon the security that's found in our great Savior. Feet planted. Stand. And I promise you this, when we learn to stand, when we learn to anchor ourselves by way of faith in everything that Jesus has provided for us, we will step into the life that he's called us to lead. Does that mean that life won't happen? What did we learn last week? No. Zoe happens. Real life happens, but by faith. We can anchor ourselves in this great Jesus who gives us everything that we need for life, for godliness, so that when we start to experience the things that we're gonna be talking about in this series, next week we're gonna talk about criticism. Come on, how many of you have ever been criticized before? You ever had something come against you? We're going to talk about criticism next week. How do you deal with criticism? Right? Those drive-by critiques. Bap, 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 bap. Uh, uh, uh. Right? Drive-by critiques that actually literally destroy us. We're going to talk about that. How do we handle loss? Because I'll tell you what, when we're not anchored, loss will knock you down. For a lot of people, we're just not equipped to deal with loss. How do we deal with some of these things that are a part of real life? That's life. But with faith, like Paul would say, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In Jesus' name, come on, would you stand to your feet with me?